Welcome to Defiant Health Radio, a place where you can count on hearing about the truth in health, uncolored by interests of big pharma, the generally misplaced motivations of healthcare and doctors, just ideas and strategies that work safely, effectively, and inexpensively. I'm your host, Dr. William Davis, cardiologist and author of the Wheat Belly and Undoctored books, and now my newest book, Super Gut, a book that gives you a blueprint on rebuilding a healthy microbiome to take back control over weight, health, and aging. In this episode of Defiant Health, let's clear up some misconceptions about the common problem of constipation, an issue that plagues around 10 to 20% of people at any one time. While the official definition of constipation is having three or fewer bowel movements per week, I would say that the official definition is way off. Three or fewer bowel movements per week is an awful standard, one that is likely to impact health in other ways, as well as being uncomfortable. And the standard remedies for constipation have problems, real problems. So let's cut through the nonsense and talk about how and why constipation develops and what you can do about it without resorting to absurd and harmful conventional solutions. Later in the podcast, let's talk about Defiant Health sponsor, Paleo Valley, their fermented grass-fed beef sticks, bone broth protein rich in collagen, organic super greens, and low-carb super food bars have among the cleanest ingredient lists in the industry. They're also expanding their wild pastures service that delivers 100% grass-fed and finished pastured meats from a regenerative family farm right to your door. I call this episode of Defiant Health Podcast, All You Wanted to Know About Constipation, But We're Afraid to Ask. Nobody likes talking about constipation, right? Even though it's a very common problem. At any one time, about 10 to 20% of people are experiencing constipation. Now, the formal definition that the gastroenterology community talks about is constipation is defined as having three or fewer bowel movements per week. Well, I don't know about you, that sounds miserable to me. That sounds like a really bad case of constipation, but that's what it takes for a gastroenterologist typically to take you seriously. I would say that the normal situation is to have at least one bowel movement per day. And so having only three per week, that is essentially a bowel movement every other day, is really inadequate because it leads to long-term problems. It changes the microbiome. It can lead to complications such as hemorrhoids, anal fissures, fecal impaction, and bowel obstruction, and when it gets really serious, and even bowel perforation, which is a very dangerous situation. There's also a shift in the microbiome that we're going to talk about, just because stool is not passing through the gastrointestinal tract as it should. This definition of constipation as being three or fewer bowel movements per week reminds me of the definition of type 2 diabetes, as defined by a fasting glucose of 126 milligrams per deciliter or a hemoglobin A1c of 6.5%. So at time of diagnosis, it's likely you already have experienced substantial health deterioration at the time of diagnosis. So the same thing here, I believe, applies to constipation. If you're moving your bowels, let's say, only three or four times per week and don't really meet the full definition of constipation, you still have problems from it, even though it is not likely to be taken seriously. Now, to be clear, constipation can vary. Different causes can apply to different people. So the gastroenterology community divides constipation into two major types. Irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, so-called IBS-C, 
and functional constipation. It's called functional because no organic reason can be identified to cause it. And the functional constipation, the second category, has several subtypes. Normal transit constipation, that's people who have no real delay in having food pass through their GI tract, but they feel like they're constipated, or the stools are hard, or they feel like they've had an incomplete bowel movement. They feel like they've failed to evacuate all their intestinal contents. So that's normal transit constipation. There's also slow transit constipation, which is what we mostly think of as constipation. That is, food does not pass through as it should. It comes out in a delayed fashion, maybe a couple or three days or four days or more later after consuming that food. There's also something called defecatory disorders. These are mostly disorders uh, unique to women, to females, because of dysfunction of the pelvic floor and the musculature of that area often in ladies who've uh, delivered a lot of children, for instance. And then there's mixed types. But you can see that different types can have different causes. Now, efforts have been made to characterize the microbiome, because you would think that as food is very slow in passing through in someone with constipation, that there can be changes in microbiome composition. And indeed, there are. Though there's a lot of disagreement, and there's been an evolution of the methods used, so it's not entirely clear yet. In the early years, they used culture methods to identify microbes. Well, unfortunately, more than 90% of all stool microbes cannot be cultured because they die upon exposure to oxygen. More recently, DNA methods have been used and have uncovered a whole universe of microbes that were not previously identified, but it's changing our current view of what microbes are present in someone who is constipated. But there are a few important patterns to know about. One, as in many other health conditions, there is a reduction in species diversity. In other words, there are fewer species, good and bad. That's a marker for poor health. So someone, for instance, who's obese has less species diversity than a slender person. Somebody with type 2 diabetes has less species diversity than someone without diabetes. Someone with cancer has less species diversity than someone without cancer. And someone with constipation therefore has less species diversity than someone without constipation. There's also specifically a loss or lack of lactobacillus and bifidobacteria species. These are healthy species of the sort we often get from probiotics and fermented foods, and they're reduced in number in people who are constipated. Unfortunately, beyond that, no signature microbial composition has emerged that defines constipation. But as you can imagine, in future, when we do have some sort of microbial signature for constipation, it will give us better insight and lead us to better solutions. But right now, we don't have that. There have been efforts to give people probiotics, both single species and uh, combinations of species. And there have been mixed results, but there have been some success, mostly with probiotics that have multiple species, not so much with single species. So if you're considering a probiotic, consider one that has multiple species at high numbers, at least 10 billion or more, preferably 50 billion or more. Let's consider some of the conventional remedies for constipation. Let's start with laxatives. So you've heard of these things in the past, things like phenothaline that came as Exlax or Senna that came as a product called Senecot. Well, most of those products have been removed from the market by the FDA because there has been an association established with colon cancer, though that evidence is admittedly weak because people who were taking laxatives and had constipation may have altered their microbiome. So it's not quite clear whether it's the, the drug itself, 
like phenethylene or whether it's the disrupted microbiome or other factors that led to an increase in colon cancer. But the fact remains that most laxatives have been removed from the market due to this concern. The Defiant Health Podcast is sponsored by Paleo Valley, makers of delicious grass-fed beef sticks, healthy snack bars, and other products. We are very picky around here and insist that any product we consider has no junk ingredients like maltodextrin, carrageenan, carboxymethylcellulose, sucralose, and of course, no added sugars. And all Paleo Valley products contain no gluten nor grains. In fact, I find Paleo Valley products among the cleanest of any in their category, and they're truly delicious. One of the habits I urge everyone to get into is to include a fermented food product at least once, if not several times per day in their lifestyles. Unlike nearly all other beef sticks available, the Paleo Valley grass-fed beef sticks are all naturally fermented, meaning they contain probiotic bacterial species. And now, Paleo Valley is expanding their Wild Pastures program that provides 100% grass-fed, grass-finished pastured beef and pastured chicken and pork, raised without herbicides or pesticides and raised in the USA. And they've just added wild-caught seafood caught from the waters of Bristol Bay, Alaska. They're now offering a 20% lifetime discount on every order for a limited time. I'll post the web address in the Defiant Health show notes. Shipping for Paleo Valley products is free for orders of $75 or more. For more information or to order, go to paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. Enter the coupon code DEFIANT, not case sensitive, for a 15% discount to Defiant Health listeners. The web address is also listed in the Defiant Health show notes that accompany this podcast. And be sure to take a look at their other products, such as their organic super greens, rich with phytonutrients, and their super food bars that come in dark chocolate chip, apple cinnamon, and lemon meringue. They're low carb, of course, with 8 grams net carbs per bar. Then there are what are called osmotic agents. These are agents that pull water into the GI tract and soften up stool. The most popular one is polyethylene glycol, or PEG. Yes, that's the same stuff used as antifreeze in your car's radiator. Well, there's problems with this osmotic agent called polyethylene glycol. Emerging science tells us that when you take polyethylene glycol, particularly if you take it chronically, not so much acutely, that is like a prep for a colonoscopy, but if you consume it chronically for constipation, bad stuff happens. You lose several important species in the GI microbiome. It also is very effective at obliterating the mucus barrier. Now, the mucus barrier in the GI tract is very important. It's the barrier between microbes and intestinal cells. And when you disrupt that mucus barrier, those microbes can actually contact directly the intestinal cells, which is very inflammatory and allows microbial breakdown products also to enter the bloodstream. And that exports inflammatory effects all throughout the body. This can also lead to inflammation and colitis in the GI tract. Losing the mucus barrier from polyethylene glycol is a really bad idea. There's also a reduction in the beneficial species, Acromantia mucinophila. Because the mucus barrier is disrupted, Acromantia can no longer feed on the mucus. That name, Acromantia mucinophila, means mucus lover. So even though it does consume mucus, it also encourages production of mucus. But using polyethylene glycol reduces the numbers of this beneficial microbe, Acromantia. 
there's also an increase in Clostridium difficile, or C. diff. That's the dreaded organism that emerges sometimes after an antibiotic and causes a very dangerous infection that is typically treated with antibiotics and sometimes with fecal transplant. Well, polyethylene glycol increases populations of C. diff. So given the evidence, taking something like polyethylene glycol, this osmotic agent, is a really bad idea. And lastly, there are agents like linoclotide that you might recognize by its brand name, Linzess, which causes water to also enter the, the uh, GI tract and soften up stool. If you read the reviews on this drug, you'll see that people really struggle with explosive and very socially embarrassing episodes when they take this drug, as well as other uh, bad side effects. And also, it costs $500 a month just to have a few more bowel movements every week. So not a good solution either. You may have heard the story about Dr. Dennis Burkett, an Irish surgeon who was working in South Africa. And this is in the 1950s and 1960s. And he noticed that the European settlers, the descendants of European settlers, had bowel movements that were small and hard, like rapid feces, but the indigenous native populations had large steaming piles of feces, rich with fiber. That was the difference, that the the bowel movements of the native indigenous populations were filled with large quantities of fiber. Now, he could only measure the cellulose-type fiber, that is, indigestible fiber. He could not quantify, because this concept hadn't emerged yet back in the 50s and 60s, of prebiotic fibers and other things that nourish microbes. But nonetheless, so the people following a Western-style diet had constipation, hemorrhoids, and these small uh, little fecal materials compared to the native populations who ate plenty of fiber from fiber-rich vegetables, tubers, roots, and fruit. Well, that, that observation has since been expanded to include many other indigenous populations, such as the Yanomami in the Brazilian rainforest, the Matzas in the highlands of Peru, the Maasai and the Hadza of the African savanna, the people who live in the interior jungles of New Guinea, the people who live on east, the east coast of Africa, the Malawi people. None of these groups have constipation, hemorrhoids, anal fissures. They have none of the problems that modern people have, and they all enjoy, just like Dr. Burkett observed, these large, fiber-rich bowel movements with no constipation. Well, I think we can take lessons from the experience of these indigenous people who enjoy healthy bowel movements every day and have none of the problems associated with constipation. First of all, we need to restore magnesium. So because we all rely on filtered water to remove toxic material like sewage or herbicides and pesticides, water filtration removes all magnesium. So whether the city does it for you or whether you do it in your own home filtration unit, all water filtration is very efficient at removing magnesium. So we all begin, if we've been relying on filtered water, we all begin with substantial deficiency of magnesium. Now magnesium is an osmotic agent. Not like polyethylene glycol, which is an extremely potent osmotic agent, but a much reduced and softer osmotic effect from magnesium. So we restore magnesium by taking magnesium in capsular tablet form or powder form, typically in the form of magnesium malate, magnesium chelate, magnesium glycinate, magnesium citrate, and there's some others. Those are among the better absorbed. The magnesium citrate seems to have a little bit better osmotic effect so that if you are struggling with constipation, you want to consider choosing the magnesium citrate. The dose is regulated typically by looking at the amount of so-called elemental magnesium present, that is the weight of the magnesium alone without the glycinate, chelate, citrate, etc. 
and we try to get somewhere around 450 to 500 milligrams of magnesium per day divided in at least two doses. Now you can look on the label. It should specify the amount of elemental magnesium provided by each capsule or tablet. If it does not specify that, just don't buy that brand. Find a brand that specifies the elemental magnesium. If it says something like magnesium malate, 1200 milligram tablets, it doesn't tell you how much magnesium is in it. You just want to know how much, how much magnesium is present. You don't care about the weight of the malic acid. Now, if you're starting with a severe case of constipation, you can use a higher dose of magnesium for a short period of days to weeks, provided you have normal kidney function, to induce a bowel movement. So getting magnesium, just as people who live in the wild, indigenous populations who drink from rivers and streams that flows over rocks and minerals, getting it, we can't get it that way, of course, right? So we have to get it from tablets or capsules and supplements. Another solution to be aware of is wheat and grain elimination. Now, we've been told to eat more grains, right? Because it has fiber in it, cellulose fiber or bran. Well, that kind of fiber is the sort that Dr. Dennis Burkett saw, is it's inert. You cannot digest it. It just passes through and it's not changed by your digestive process. So grains are indeed a source of cellulose fiber. What you're not told is that grains contain a protein called gliadin, gliadin in wheat, cecalin in rye, hordein in barley, zein in corn. And these proteins we cannot digest fully. We don't have the enzymes to break them down into single amino acids like we do the protein, say, in an egg or a piece of chicken. So when we eat the gliadin protein of wheat and related proteins and other grains, we can't break it down to single amino acids, but we break it down into four or five amino acid long peptide fragments. Now, these have opioid properties. They can go to your brain, where they stimulate appetite and have other effects on your emotions and brain function. But because these peptides have opioid properties, you already know that people who take opiate drugs like morphine or oxycodone, can experience really severe constipation, really struggle with it. Well, these opioid peptides that come from the gliadin protein of wheat and related grains are also very constipating. Some, some of the worst constipation I've ever seen called obstipation. These are people who move their bowels once every week or once even every several weeks. It's very painful. These people become reliant on laxatives, stool softeners, and enemas. I've seen this problem go away within days of getting rid of glidin-derived opioid peptides. So be aware of that effect. Lastly, if you are suffering from constipation and have for quite some time, you want to test your breath for methane gas. Now that's become enormously easier lately because there's a new consumer testing device called the AIR device, A-I-R-E. It comes from a company called Food Marble. I'll list this down in the show notes. It's about $200. It sounds like a lot of money, but the advantages are you only have to buy it once and you can use it over and over and over again in case you want to monitor long term. It's a lot cheaper than the standard testing that you do in a lab or clinic where they typically charge $300 or a lot more depending on the markup they apply. Also, you get immediate results. It's a real-time device. You blow into it, and it gives you a result right away. Now, on the air device, there's a, it's a scale of 0 to 10, and each unit, 1, 2, 3, corresponds to 5 parts per million of both methane as well as the hydrogen gas that you can test for SIBO also. But the methane gas, if at any time you register a score of 2 or higher, anytime, the beginning, at the end, doesn't matter, it means you have overgrowth of what are called methanogens. These are very peculiar creatures that predate bacteria evolutionarily. They come from a class of, of microbes called archaea. 
The most common one is Methanobrevibacter smithii. You can see this on a stool testing. So that's another way also to identify methanogen overgrowth is to do stool testing where species like Methanobrevibacter smithii are found at excessive quantities. So methane is produced by these methanogenic microbes and methane has been shown to slow the propulsive action, the so-called peristalsis of the GI tract and leads to constipation. So looking for methane on the breath can tell you whether methanogen overgrowth is a contributor to constipation. Now what to do about it is another uh, conversation. I invite you to join my conversations in my drdavisinfinitehealth.com blog or my Dr. Davis Infant Health Inner Circle. We talk about these things all the time as well as my book, Super Gut, where we talk about because there's some more complicated things you want to know about if you're going to have to address methanogenic overgrowth. And of course, these sorts of efforts of taking advantage of the osmotic properties of magnesium supplementation, of wheat and grain elimination, and thereby gliadin-derived opioid peptides, and testing for methane to see if you have methanogenic overgrowth, is in combination with the common sense issues that you already know about, such as hydrating properly and exercise, and that also does help a little bit. And by taking these steps, perhaps you can avoid some of the toxic effects of conventional remedies for constipation. Now, if you've learned something from this episode of Defiant Health, I invite you to subscribe through your favorite podcast directory, post a review, post a comment, tell your friends, because we're trying to build this movement of self-empowered health to free you from the tyranny of conventional healthcare. Thanks for listening. 